Matt. And my name is Cam. And you're listening to Mysteries, Conspiracies and Random Shit. The show where we expose and unravel some of the most famous stories about unsolved cases, pop culture crimes, conspiracies, controversies and so much more. Each week you'll hear us dive into a new topic and give you all the facts you need to know as well as hearing our take on things. As always, we have an Instagram page where we post any visuals you may need to go along with the episode. So if you want to check that out, you can follow us at Mysteries Conspiracies. This week, as you've seen by the title, we will be discussing Charles Manson and the Manson that, family. That was posh. Title. Oh, was it? Title. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> as you can tell by the title. Oh, God. No, I did not mean to do it like that. <laughs> Flipping Queen's English. Well, well, when I can use the Queen's English. I know, pronunciation. Well, I don't know. Half of these like words and names and stuff you've been reading aren't English. So. No, I'm bad at it anyway, so it just doesn't help, does it? But I feel like there's some more this week because there's a lot of people in the Manson family where I'm like... This is going to be fun. Yeah. So we'll see. Um, this is kind of a follow-on from last week's episode with Marilyn Manson, purely because he got his name from Charles Manson. Um, I have a lot of research, a lot more than last week that I've done because oh, there's just God. so much to the story. But I needed to try and include as much as possible. Um so yeah, I'll just get into it. We'll start reading through. You know a bit more about this topic as well, don't I you? I do. Yeah, so you can interject as and when you please and go from there. So let me get started. Born November the 12th, 1934 and lived till November the 19th, 2017. He was an American criminal who led the Manson family, a cult based in California in the late 60s. Some of the members committed a series of nine murders at four locations in July and August 1969. In 1971, Manson was convicted of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder for the deaths of seven people, including the film actress Sharon Tate. The prosecution contended that, while Manson never directly ordered the murders, his ideology constituted an overt act of conspiracy. Uh, yeah, I remember about... Uh... Yeah, it were with Charles Manson and the Beach Boys. Yes. Weren't it? Yeah, yeah. He had a lot to do with them. He did, yeah. Because he, and I will get into it, but he liked music. And, uh, a bit too much. Yeah, but he was nearly quite successful with it. He just was a bit of a psychopath. Yeah. So ended up going to prison instead of producing music, which he could have done if he just decided not to yeah. create a massive cult, to be honest. Well, yeah. So, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll not say too much because I'm sure you've got it all written down already. Oh, I have indeed. I have. <laughs> so Charles Manton was born November the 12th, 1934, to a 16-year-old mother, Kathleen Manton Bauer Cavander. Uh, she lived from 1918 to 1973. He was born in the, I think he was born in the University of Cincinnati Academic Health Center in Cincinnati, Ohio, and was named Charles Mills Manson. 
Manson's biological father appears to have been Colonel Walker Henderson Scott Sr., who lived from 1910 to 1954 and lived in Cattlesburg. Wait. Cat. Catlettsburg, <laughs> Kentucky. Fucking hell. Against whom Kathleen Maddox filed a paternity suit that resulted in an agreed judgment in 1937. Scott worked intermittently in local mills and had a local reputation as a con artist. He allowed Maddox to believe that he was an army colonel, although Colonel was merely his given name. When Maddox told Scott that she was pregnant, he told her he had been called away on army business. After several months, she realised he had no intention of returning. Manson may have never known his biological father. In August 1934, before Manson's birth, Maddox married William Eugene Manson, who lived from 1909 to 1961. He was a labourer at a dry cleaning business. Maddox often went on drinking sprees with her brother Lufa, leaving Charles with multiple babysitters. They divorced on April the 30th, 1937, after William alleged gross neglect of duty by Maddox. Charles retained William's last name, Manson. And on August the 1st, 1939, Luther and Kathleen Maddox were arrested for assault and robbery. Kathleen and Luther were sentenced to five and ten years of imprisonment, respectively. Manson was placed in the home of an aunt and uncle in... Oh, fucking hell. In, I'm just going to say in West Virginia. McKechn. Thank you. <laughs> Um, his mother. <laughs> it's not that hard. <laughs> Honestly, it just it wouldn't have come out right. I know. Um, his mother was paroled in 1942, and Manson later characterised the first weeks after she returned from prison as the happiest time of her life. Weeks after Maddox's release, Manson's family moved to Charleston, West Virginia, where Manson continually continually played truant, and his mother spent her evenings drinking. She was arrested for grand larceny, but not convicted. The family later moved to Indianapolis, where Maddox met an alcoholic with the last name Lewis through Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and married him in August 1943. In an interview with Diane Sawyer, Manson said that when he was nine, he set his school on fire. Manson also got into trouble for truancy and petty theft. Although there was a lack of foster home placements in 1947, at age 13, Manson was placed in the Gibbalt School for Boys in Indiana. We're just going to leave that at that, unless you have the name for it. Oh, it's uh, Terra Hout? See, I... Hout? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Um, and it was a school for male delinquents run by Catholic priests. Gibalt was a strict school where punishment for even the smallest infraction included beatings with either a wooden paddle or a leather strap. Manson ran away from Gibalt and slept in the woods, under bridges and wherever else he could find shelter. Manson fled home to his mother and spent Christmas 1947 in that town again. Where am I looking? McCurshin, is it? McCurshin. Yeah, that. Um, at his aunt and uncle's house. His mother returned him to Gibbalt. Ten months later, he ran away to Indianapolis. In 1948, in Indianapolis, Manson committed his first known crime by robbing a grocery store. 
At first, the robbery was simply to find something to eat. However, Manson found a cigar box containing just over $100 and he took the money. He used the money to rent a room on Indianapolis Skid Row and to buy food. For a time, Manson had a job delivering messages for Western Union in an attempt to live a free life of crime. However, he quickly began to supplement his wages through petty theft. He was eventually caught and in 1949, a sympathetic judge sent him to the Boys Town, a juvenile facility in Omaha, Nebraska. After four days at Boys Town, he and a fellow student, Blackie Nielsen, obtained a gun and stole a car. They used it to commit two armed robberies on their way to the home of Nielsen's uncle in Illinois. Nielsen's uncle was a professional thief and when the boys arrived, he allegedly took them on as apprentices. Manson was arrested two weeks later during a nighttime raid on a... Oh, fucking hell. On a Peoria store. I've lost track. No, it's fine, it's all right. Peoria store, I think that's how you say it. Um, In the investigation that followed, he was linked to his two earlier armed robberies. He was sent to the Indiana Boys School, a strict reform school. That were Peoria, Illinois, by the way. Thank you. At the school, other students allegedly raped Manson with the encouragement of a staff member, and he was repeatedly beaten. He ran away from the school eight times. While at the school, Manson developed a self-defense technique he later called the insane game, where he was physically unable to when he was physically unable to defend himself, sorry. He would screech, grimace and wave his arms to convince aggressors that he was insane. After a number of failed attempts, he escaped with two other boys in February 1951. The three escapees were robbing filling stations while attempting to drive to California in stolen cars where they were arrested in Utah. For the federal crime of driving a stolen car across state lines, Manton was sent to Washington DC's National Training School for Boys. On arrival, he was given aptitude test, which determined that he was illiterate, but had an above-average IQ of 109. His caseworker deemed him aggressively antisocial. On a psychiatrist's recommendation, Manson was transferred in October 1951 to Natural Bridge Honor Camp, a minimum security institution. His aunt visited him and told administrators she would let him stay at her house and would help him find work. Manson had a parole hearing scheduled for February 1952. However, in January, he was caught raping a boy at knife point. Manson was transferred to federal reformatory in Petersburg, Virginia. There he committed a further eight serious disciplinary offences, three involving homosexual acts. He was then moved to a maximum security reformatory at Chillicothe, Ohio, where he was expected to remain until his release on his 21st birthday in November 1955. Good behaviour led to an early release in May 1954 to live with his aunt and uncle. Before the murders, Manson had spent more, more than half his life in correctional institutions. While gathering his cult following, Manson was a singer-songwriter on the fringe of the Los Angeles music industry, chiefly thoroughly a chance association chiefly through a chance association with Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, who introduced Manson to record producer Terry Mc- Melcher. 
1968, the Beach Boys recorded Manson's song Cease to Exist, which was later renamed Never Learn Not to Love, as a single B-side, but without a credit to Manson. Afterward, Manson attempted to secure a record contract through Melcher, but was unsuccessful. Manson would often talk about the Beatles, including their 1968 self-titled album. According to the Los Angeles County District Attorney, Vincent Bugliose, Manson... No, 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 Bugliose. Thank you. Bugliose. Bugliose, thank you. Uh, Manson felt guided by his interpretation of the Beatles lyrics and adopted the term Helter Skelter to describe an impending apocalyptic race war. During his trial, Bugliosi argued that Manson had intended to start a race war, although Manson had, and others disputed this. Contemporary interviews and trial witness testimony insisted that the Tate LaBianca murders were copycat crimes intended to exonerate Manson's friend, Bobby Bu. Oh, fucking hell. Buse. <laughs> Bosalil. Thank you. Manson himself denied having instructed anyone to murder any, anyone to murder anyone. Yeah, that was correct. Um, Manson's notoriety was an emblem of insanity, violence. Notoriety. Thank you. Fucking hell. I need help because I just can't read any of this. <laughs> um, and well, when, when somebody's notorious, that you talk about the notoriety and why they were notorious. That's why it's notoriety, not notoriety. Um, yeah. Is it the same thing though? No. Oh, okay. Ignore me then. No, you're just saying it completely wrong. That's all. I know. I know. I'm very aware. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was an emblem of insanity, violence, and the macabre influence pop culture. Recordings of songs written and performed by Manson were later released commercially, starting with Lie, The Love of The Love and Terracle in 1970. Since his incarceration, various musicians have covered some of his songs. Although originally sentenced to death in 1971, his sentence was commuted to life with the possibility of parole after the California Supreme Court invalidated the state's death penalty in 1972. He served his life sentence in California State Prison and died at age 83 in 2017. In, nine, in January 1955, Manson married a hospital waitress named Rosalie Jean Willis. Around October, about three months after he and his pregnant wife married in Los Angeles in a car he had stolen in Ohio, Manson was again charged with a federal crime for taking the vehicle across state lines. After a psychiatric evaluation, he was given five years probation. Manson's failure to appear in Los Angeles hearing on an identical charge filed in Florida resulted in his March 1956 arrest in India, Indianapolis. His probation was revoked. Indianapolis? I don't fucking know. Indianapolis? Indianapolis, that's it. His probation was revoked and he was sentenced to three years imprisonment at Terminal Island in Los Angeles. While Manson was in prison, Rosalie gave birth to their son, Charles Manson Jr. During his first year at Terminal Island, Manson received visits from Rosalie and his mother, who were now living together in Los Angeles. In March 1957, 
when the visits from his wife ceased, his mother informed him Rosalie was living with another man. Less than two weeks before a scheduled parole hearing, Manson tried to escape by stealing a car. He was given five years probation and his parole was denied. Manson received five years parole in September 1958, the same year in which Rosalie received a decree of divorce. By November, he was pimping a 16-year-old girl and was receiving additional support from a girl with wealthy parents. In September 1959, he pleaded guilty to a charge of attempting to cash a forged US Treasury check, which he claimed to have stolen from a mailbox. The latter charge was later dropped. He received a 10-year suspended sentence and probation after a young woman named Leona, who had an arrest record for prostitution, made a tearful plea before the court that she and Manson were deeply in love and would marry would marry if Charlie were freed. Before the year's end, the woman did marry Manson, possibly so she would not be required to testify against him. Manson took Leona and another woman to New Mexico for purposes of prostitution, resulting in him being held and questioned for violating the Man Act. Though he was released, Manson correctly suspended that the suspected that the investigation had not ended. When he disappeared in violation of his probation, a bench warrant was issued. An indictment for violation of the Mann Act followed in April 1960. Following the arrest of one of the women for prostitution, Manson was arrested in June in Laredo, Texas, if I've said that right, and was returned to Los Angeles for... for for violating his probation on the check cashing charge, he was ordered to serve his 10-year sentence. Manson spent a year trying to unsuccessfully... Manson spent a year trying to... Oh, I'm not saying that right at all. Manson spent a year trying unsuccessfully to appeal... To, yeah, the revocation of his probation. In July 1961, he was transferred from the Los Angeles County Jail to the United States Penitentiary at McNeil Island, Washington. There he took guitar lessons from Barker Carpet. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Yeah. Gang leader Alvin Creepy Carpus and obtained from another inmate a contact name of someone at Universal Studios in Hollywood, Bill Kaufman. Among his fellow prisoners during this time was Danny Trejo, who participated in several hypnosis sessions. According to Jeff Gwynn's 2013 biography of Manson, his mother moved to Washington State to be closer to him during his McNeil Island incarceration, working nearby as a waitress. Although the Manac charge had been dropped, the attempt to cash the treasury check was still a federal offence. Manson's September 1961 annual review noted that he had a tremendous drive to call attention to himself, an observation echoed in September 1964. In 1963, Leona was granted a divorce. During the process, she alleged that she and Manson had a son, Charlie Luther. According to a popular urban legend, Manson auditioned unsuccessfully for the Monkees in late 1965. This is refuted. The, the, the Monkees. Yeah. Oh my god, why am I saying everything wrong? This is refuted by the fact that Manson was still incarcerated at McNeil Island at the time. In June 1966, Manson was sent for a second time to Terminal Island in preparation for early release. 
By the time of his release day on March 21st, 1967, he had spent more than half of his 32 years in prisons and other institutions. This was mainly because he had broken federal laws. Federal sentences were, and remain, much more severe than state sentences for many of the same offences. Telling the authorities that the prison had become his home, he requested permission to stay. Now, I'm going to get on to the Manson family themselves, how yeah. they formed, and the rest of his life from then on, basically. Yeah. So, less than a month after his 1967 release from prison, Manson moved to Berkeley from Los Angeles, which could have been a probation violation. Instead, after calling the San Francisco probation office upon his arrival, he was transferred to the supervision of criminology doctoral researcher and federal probation officer Roger Smith. Until the spring of 1968, Smith worked at the High Ashbury Free Medical Centre, which Manson and his family free frequented throughout their stay. Frequented. Thank you. Roger Smith, as well as the HAFMC's founder, David E. Smith, received funding from the National Institutes of Health to study the effects of drugs like LSD and methamphetamine on the counterculture movement. Now, this... Yes. ...was... Um, what's it called again? Project MKUltra. Ah. Where they tested different drugs on inmates right. throughout the US and they gave them it by prescription to people yeah. without them knowing. Right. So a lot of people had taken LSD without knowing that they'd been taking LSD Yeah. because CIA fancied testing it on people. Right, because I think we've got that down as the next yeah, episode. And while I was doing my research, I wasn't 100% certain where it fell into it. Yeah, well, while I was in in prison there, well, I guess ah. it wasn't really a prison, were it? But yeah. it kind of were. Um, <clears throat> he was part of the... Yeah, he was part of it all with the... What do you call it? MKUltra. That makes a lot of sense now. That were run by CIA. Yeah, it actually says here, the patients at the clinic became subjects of their research, including Manson and his expanding group of mostly female followers who came to see Roger Smith regularly. So it yeah. was it. Yeah, Manson received permission from Roger Smith to move from Berkeley to the Haight-Ashbury district in San Francisco. He first took LSD and would use it frequently during his time there. David Smith, who had studied the effects of LSD and amphetamines in rodents, wrote that the change in Manson's personality during this time was the most abrupt Roger Smith had observed in his entire professional career. So, is that was that Manson knowing that he was under this project? I don't think so. He wasn't aware that he was taking LSD? No. But I know. I don't think so. Oh, that's quite interesting. No, a lot of them didn't. Because it, well, did, it no didn't properly explain it when yeah, I was yeah, doing yeah. my research. And I, honestly, I just thought he was just taking it. And he knew about it and no. he was just taking it for the sake of it. Right. And that wouldn't have helped him either. 
No, definitely not. Especially because it said he was the most abrupt that yeah. Roger had observed. Then clearly, I mean, he wasn't right in the head anyway, but that no. obviously like cements that fact. Yeah. Ah, I get you. So, going back to my research... Manson also read the book Stranger in a Strange Land, a science fiction novel by Robert A. Heinlein. Is that did I say that right? Oh Heinlein, whichever. Yeah. Oh, look at me. <laughs> Inspired by the budgeting free love philosophy. Did I say that right as well? Yeah. Yay. <laughs> In High Ashbury during the Summer of Love, Manson began preaching his own philosophy based on a mixture of Stranger in a Stranger Land, the Bible, Scientology, Dale Car Carnegie, uh, and the Beatles, which quickly earned him a following. Now, going to Scientology, that in itself is a massive controversy. Oh, well, yeah. I have watched quite a few videos on it recently. Yeah, is it just a bunch of loonies that pay into this thing and well, it's... live in a big house together with the right weirdos? Well, no, it's it's not that, because one of the most well-known people in Scientology is Tom Cruise. Yeah, I know. And um, I've... Um, but he doesn't live with, in a house with them. No, a lot of them do, though. The, oh. not the less wealthy ones. I get you, I get you. I just but find a lot it of really them are interesting. Wealthy. Yeah. So, yeah, ah. they're a bunch of loonies, basically. They believe a load of stuff that has not been proved. Yeah. Well, I suppose it's like any religion, it's not always been proved, but... Oh, yeah, it's just whatever. It just seems a lot more out there. Yeah, than like, yeah. Than other religions. religions. Yeah. So, in prison, bank robber Alvin Corpus had taught Manson to play the steel guitar. Living mostly by begging, Manson soon became acquainted with Mary Brunner, a 23-year-old graduate of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Oh, my name. Mm. <laughs> Brunner was working as a library assistant at the University of California, Berkeley, and Manson moved in with her. According to a second-hand account, he overcame her resistance to his bringing other woman, women in to live with them. Before long, they were sharing Brunner's residence with 18 other women. <laughs> um, Manson soon began to attract large crowds of listeners and some dedicated followers. He targeted individuals for manipulation. They were emotionally insecure and social outcasts. In his book, Love Needs Care, about his time at the HAFMC, David Smith claims that Manson attempted to reprogram their minds to submit totally to his will through the use of LSD and unconventional sexual practices that would turn his followers into empty vessels that would accept anything he poured. Manson family member Paul Watkins testified that Manson would encourage group LSD trips and take lower doses himself to keep his wits about him. Watkins said that Charlie's trip was to program us all to submit. Manson established himself as a guru in San Francisco's High Ashbury district, which during 1967's Summer of Love was emerging as a signature hippie local. 
Manson may have borrowed some of his philosophy from the Process Church of the Final Judgment, whose members believed Satan would become reconciled to Jesus and they would come together at the end of the world to judge humanity. Manson soon had the first of his groups of followers, which were later dubbed the Manson family by Bugliosi and the media, most of them female. Manson allegedly taught his followers that they were the reincarnation of the original Christians and that the Romans were the establishment. Sometime around 1967, he began to use the alias Charles Willis Manson. Before the end of the summer, Manson and some of the women piled into an old school bus they had redesigned in a hippie style with coloured rugs and pillows in place of the many seats they had removed. They travelled eventually settling in Los Angeles areas of Topanga Canyon, Malibu and Venice. In 1967, Brunner became pregnant by Manson and on April 15, 1968, gave birth to a son she named Valentine Michael in a condemned house in Topanga Canyon. Assisted during the birth by several young women of the Manson family. Brunner, like most members of the group, acquired a number of aliases and nicknames including Marioche, Ock, Mother Mary, Mary Manson, Linda D. Manson and Christine Mary, Marie. Sorry. By the end of his stay in the high in April 1968, Manson had attracted 20 or so followers, all under the supervision of his parole officer Roger Smith and many of the staff at the HAFMC. The core members of Manson's following eventually included Charles Tex Watson, a musician and former actor, Bobby Beausoleil, a former musician and pornographic actor, Brunner, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, Patricia Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Houten. Supervised by his parole officer Roger Smith, Manson grew his family through drug use and prostitution without interference from the authorities. Manson was arrested on July 31, 1967 for attempting to prevent the arrest of one of his followers, Ruth Ann Morehouse. Instead of being sent back to prison, the charge was reduced to a misdemeanour and Manson was given three additional years of probation. He avoided prosecution again in July 1968 when he and the family were arrested while moving from San Francisco to Los Angeles with the permission of Roger Smith when his bus crashed into a ditch, when Manson and members of his family, including Brunner and Manson's newborn baby, were found sleeping naked by the police. Afterwards, he was again arrested and released only a few days later, this time on a drug charge. Actor Al Lewis had Manson babysit his children on a couple of occasions and described him as a nice guy when he knew him. Music producer Phil Kaufman introduced Manson to Universal Studios producer Gary Strongberg, then working on a film adaptation of The Life of Jesus set in modern America, featuring a black Jesus and southern redneck Romans. Strongberg thought that Manson made interesting suggestions about what Jesus might do in a situation seeming to be attuned to the role. He had one of his women kiss his feet and then kissed hers in return to demonstrate the place of women. At the beach one day, Stromberg watched Manson preach again, preached against a materialistic outlook only to be questioned about his well-furnished bus. He casually tossed the bus keys 
to the doubter who promptly drove it away while Manson watched, apparently unconcerned. According to Stromberg, Manson had a dynamic personality with an ability to read a person's weaknesses and manipulate them. For example, Manson tried to manipulate Danny DiCarlo, the treasurer of the Straight Satan's Motorcycle Club, by granting him access to family women. He then convinced DiCarlo that it was his large down below region which kept the woman in the group. Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys picked up Patricia Krenwinkel and Ella Jo Bailey when they were hitchhiking in late spring 1968 while under the influence of alcohol and LSD and brought them to his Pacific Palisades house for a few hours. He returned home in the early hours of the following morning from a night recording session and was greeted by Manson in the driveway who emerged from the house. Wilson asked the stranger whether he intended to hurt him. Manson assured him that he had no such intent and began kissing Wilson's feet. Inside the house, Wilson discovered 12 strangers, mostly women. The account given in Manson and his own words is that Manson first met Wilson at a friend's San Francisco house where Manson had gone to obtain marijuana. Manson claimed that Wilson gave him his Sunset Boulevard address and invited him to stop by when he came to Los Angeles. Wilson said that in 1968 record mirror uh, in a 1968 record mirror article that he mentioned the Beach Boys' involvement with um Maharishi Mahesh Yogi to a group of strange women and they told me they had they too had a guru, a guy named Charlie. The number of women doubled in Wilson's house over the next few months and they cost him approximately a hundred thousand dollars by making themselves part of his household. This included a large medical bill for treatment of their gonorrhea. Uh yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> they basically took over Dennis Wilson's house. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> and the fact that some of the charges was the £100,000 was treatment yeah. for gonorrhea. Um, and it says in $21,000 for the destruction of his uninsured car, which they borrowed, Wilson would sing and talk with Manson while the women were treated as servants to them both. Wilson paid for studio time to record songs written and performed by Manson and introduced him to entertain business acquaintances, including Greg Jacobson, Terry Melcher and Rudy Altabelli, who owned a house which he rented to actress Sharon Tate and her husband, Roman Polanski. Jacobson was impressed by the whole Charlie Manson package of artist, lifestylist and philosopher, and he paid to record his material. Wilson moved out of the rented home when the lease expired and his landlord evicted the family. Manson established a base for the family at the Spahn Ranch in August 1968 after Wilson's landlord evicted them. It had been a, a television and movie set for the Westerns, but the building had deteriorated by the late 1960s and the ranch's revenue was primarily, primarily derived from the selling horseback rides. Female family members did chores around the ranch and occasionally had sex on Manson's orders with the nearly blind 80-year-old owner, George Spahn. Yeah, did I tell you that... Do you remember the scene in... Uh, 
Oh, I know. Once what upon you a time mean. in Hollywood, where I know what you when mean now. Uh, Brad Pitt went to that weird ranch. Yeah. It the, the whole film's based on the Manson family. So that was like kind of what was. Yeah. Oh my god! No way. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, th I thought I told you. No. Oh my god, that's so interesting. Yeah, the the whole uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood film. That changes, like, my entire view of the movie now. Oh, yeah. Because, not that that scene wasn't weird in itself, but now that it's linked to, like, real-life events. It actually events, happened, yeah. Yeah, and it makes a lot more sense than is, like... To all those girls hell. that were there with that blind guy. Oh, and, yeah, were yeah. Manson's followers. I get you, and the blind guy was the person who owned yeah. the place and didn't know how many people were there, basically. Yeah. Ah. Because that were where uh, Leonardo DiCaprio did his first like TV shows and stuff. I get you. Okay. And then, obviously, they went, he ended up going into different things. Yeah. Because we're a bit outdated. Uh, oh. And that's when he... I, don't, I can't remember why Brad Pitt ended up going there. I can't remember now because it was a while yeah, ago yeah. since we watched the movie. Uh, but yeah, it's loosely based, I think. That's really interesting, actually. Oh my God. Well, it says here as well like the last little bit about it was that the woman also acted as seeing guides for him yeah. and in exchange Sparn allowed Manson and his group to live at the ranch for free and Lynette from acquired a nickname Squeaky because she often squeaked when Sparn pinched her thigh <laughs> um, and then Charles Watson a small town Texan who had quit college and moved to California soon joined the group at the ranch but that is so interesting yeah, I know. That has really changed my outlook on the movie now. Because yeah. obviously when I watched the movie, I knew that it was related to certain things that had happened in Hollywood, etc. and around yeah. different things. But I actually didn't know about yeah. a lot about Charles Manson and the Manson family until I did this research. Yeah. Oh, my God. That is so interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, now that I've spoken about the origins of the Manson family, I'm going to get on to the murders. This is a bit of the dark part of the episode. Where it goes like to the murders, the trial, yeah. etc., all that. So, the Manson family developed into a doomsday cult when Manson became fixated on the idea of an imminent apocalyptic race war between America's black population and the larger white population. A white supremacist manson told some of the manson family that black people in america would rise up and kill all white people except for manson and his family but that they were not intelligent enough to survive on their own they would need a white man to lead them so they would serve manson as their master late in 1968 manson adopted the term helter skelter taken from a song on the beatles recently released white album to refer to this upcoming war in early August 1969, some Manson family members committed murders in Los Angeles. The Manson family gained national notoriety after the murder of actress Sharon Tate. Notoriety. 
Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And four others in her home on August the 8th and 9th, 1969, and Leno and Rosemary Libyanka the next day. Manson entered. (gasps) That's the end of the movie. Yep. And he killed Sharon Tate. Oh my God, we need to watch this movie again. Oh my God. How has this just clicked in my mind? I, I don't know. I thought what I told the fuck? you already. No. <gasps> I'm just being like, I was being thinking about it then. And as soon as my, the next line I was about to read <laughs> is Manson entered 10,050 Celio Drive uninvited. And I'm like, wait a sec, at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there's a massive murder scene. And I'm like, and they came yeah. in unannounced. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> we need to watch this movie. I'm going to have to watch it tonight once we've done this. Yeah. Because this has just, this has changed my life. Buckled your mind. It has, and it's changed my viewpoint of the entire movie. Because as much as, like, at the time, if you'd have told me, I wouldn't have got yeah. it. No. Until I did this in-depth research. Yeah. Oh, my God. We're watching this movie after. We are. <laughs> we are. Right. So, <laughs> to get back into it, Manson entered 10,050 Celio Drive, uninvited, on March the 23rd, 1969, which he had known as Melcher's residence. Manson was met by Sharok Hatame, an Iranian photographer who befriended Polanski and Tate during the making of the documentary Mia and Roman. He was there to photograph Tate before her departure for Rome the next day. He had seen Manson through a window as he approached the main house and had gone up to the front porch to ask him what he wanted. Yeah, because Sharon Tate were, what's her name? Margot. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, I love Margot Robbie. She's a beautiful woman, honestly. Yeah, that was Margot, and then Roman Polanski was um, Leonardo. Oh, we're seriously watching this movie, (laughs) honestly. Um, So, yeah, Manson told him that he was looking for someone whose name Hatame did not recognise. And Hatame informed him that the place was the Polanski residence. He advised Manson to try the back alley, by which he meant the path to the guest house beyond the main house. He was concerned about the stranger on the property and went down to the front to confront Manson front walk to confront Manson. Tate then appeared behind Hatame in the house's front door and asked him who was calling. Hatame said that the man was looking for someone. He and Tate maintained their positions while Manson went to the back guest house without a word and returned a minute or two later and left. I'm reliving this entire movie scene in my head Uh, now while I'm reading this. I I will continue. (laughs) That evening, Manson returned to the property and again went back to the guest house. He entered the enclosed porch and spoke with Atabelli, who was just coming out of the shower. Manson asked for Melcher, but Atabelli felt that Manson had come looking for him. This is consistent with Prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi's later discovery that Manson had apparently been to the property on earlier occasions after Melcher's departure from it. Atabelli told Manson through the screen door that Melcher had moved to Malibu, falsely stating that he did not know his noon address. 
Atabilly said that he was in the entertainment business, although he had met Manson on the previous year at Wilson's home, and he was sure that Manson already knew that. He had complimented Manson's lukewarm... What? What? This sentence doesn't make sense. Anyway, he'd complimented Manson anyway on some of his musical <laughs> recordings that Wilson had been playing. He then informed Manson that he was going out of the country the next day, and Manson said that he would like to speak with him upon his return. Atabilly lied that he would be gone for more than a year, and Manson explained that he had been directed to the guest house by the persons in the main house. Atabilly expressed the wish that Manson would not disturb his tenants. Atabelli flew with Tate to Rome the next day, and Tate asked him whether that creepy-looking guy had gone back to the guest house the day before. On the night of August 8th, 1969, Manson directed Tex Watson to take Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian and Patricia Cromwinkle to Melcher's former home at 10,050 Celio Drive in Los Angeles. And according to Watson, their orders were basically to kill everyone there. Yeah, they went to the wrong house. Yeah, they they went. Yeah. They, they, they didn't mean to kill Sean Tate. Yeah. They, they meant to go and kill someone i forgot who they went to go and kill but they they got the wrong house because manson yeah, wasn't yeah. there yeah ah, i get you well that was a bit of a fuck up wasn't it yeah but they ended up killing sharon tate instead yeah because i'll say it later anyway but she was pregnant yeah which like when i was doing the research for it and it said she was like i think it was either she was seven and a half or eight and a half months pregnant and I just found that really sad, and I was like, I don't know. It's just, oh, it's just a really sad thing, isn't it? I guess when, yeah, yeah. It's such like a nice time in someone's life, and they get taken away as well as that. So yeah. Um. Anyway, the home had only recently been rented to actress Sharon Tate and her husband, director Roman Polanski. Polanski was away in Europe working on the day of the dolphin. Manson told the three women to do as Watson told them. The family members proceeded to kill the five people they found. Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant, who was living there at the time, Jay Sabring, Abigail Folger, and Wojtek Frykowski, who were visiting her, and Stephen Parent, who had been visiting the caretaker of the home. Atkins wrote pig with Tate's blood on the front door as they left. The murders created a nationwide sensation. The Tate murders became national news on August 9th, 1969. The Polanski's housekeeper, Wilfred Chapman, had arrived for work that morning and discovered the murder scene. On August 10th, the detectives of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, which had jurisdiction on the Hinman case, informed and I'll get in the Hinman case in a bit, yeah. um, informed Los Angeles Police Department so the LAPD detectives assigned to the Tate case of the bloody writing in the Hinman house. According to Vincent Bugliosi, because detectives believed the Tate murders were a consequence of a drug transaction, the Tate team ignored this and the crimes other similarities. The Tate autopsies were underway and the LeBianca bodies were yet to be discovered which I will also get into as well in a second. Yeah. 
During the Tate autopsies, detectives working on the Gary Hinman case noticed the similarities in weapons used, the stab wounds and the writing in blood on the walls. They also thought the case had something to do with narcotics. They brought the information to detectives working on the Tate murders. However, according to De Detective Charlie Gunter, Vince Bugliosi didn't want anything to do with the Hinman case. Hinman was a nothing case. Vince didn't want to prosecute it. Stephen Parent, the shooting victim in the Tate driveway, oh, I'm like reliving this scene, <laughs> was determined to have been an acquaintance of William Garretson, who lived in the guest house. Garretson was a young man hired by Rudy Atabelli to take care of the property while Atabelli was away. As the killers arrived, Parent had been leaving Celio Drive after a visit to Garretson. Held briefly as a Tate suspect, Garretson told police he had neither seen nor heard anything on the murder night. He was released on August the 11th, 1969, after, an under, after undergoing a polygraph examination that indicated he had not been involved in the crimes. Interviewed decades later, he stated that, in fact, witnessed a portion of the murders, as the examination suggested, Garretson died in August 2016. So now I'll get into the LaBianca murders as well. So the night after, on August the 9th, 1969, seven family members, Leslie Van Houten, Steve Clem Grogan, Charles Manson, and the four from the previous night drove to the home of Leno and Rosemary LaBianca. Watson stated that having gone up alone, Manson returned to take him up to the house with him. After Manson pointed out a sleeping man through a window, the two of them entered through the unlocked back door and Watson bound the couple and covered their heads with pillowcases. Manson left, sending Kremwinkle and Van Houten into the house. Watson sent the women into the bedroom where Rosemary was. He then began stabbing Leno with a bayonet. Watson discovered Rosemary swinging a lamp at the women. He stabbed her with the bayonet, then returned to the living room and resumed attacking Leno, whom he stabbed 12 times. Kremwinkle stabbed Rosemary. Watson told Van I want to know where the uh, flamethrower comes in. Oh, I don't know. We'll see in a minute. <laughs> or whether that would just... Um, what's his name being dramatic? Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, Watson told Van Houten to stab Mrs. Labianca too, which she did. Kremwinkle wrote rise and death to pigs on the walls and helter-skelter on the refrigerator door in the Labianca's blood. Meanwhile, Manson directed Kasabian to drive to the home of an acquaintance of hers. Manson dropped off Kasabian, Grogan and Atkins and drove back to the Spam Ranch. Kasabian allegedly thwarted a murder by deliberately knocking on the wrong door. The LaBianca crime scene was discovered about 10.30pm on August 10th, approximately 19 hours after the murders were committed. 15-year-old Frank Struthers, Rosemary's son from a prior marriage and Leno's stepson, returned from a camping trip and were disturbed by seeing all of the window shades of his home drawn and by the fact that his stepfather's speedboat was still attached to the family car, which was parked in the driveway. He called his older sister and her boyfriend. The boyfriend, Joe Dorgan, accompanied the younger Struthers into the home and discovered Leno's body. Rosemary's body was found by investigating police officers. 
On August 12, 1969, the LAPD told press it had ruled out any connection between the Tate and LaBianca homicides, and on August 16th, the sheriff's sheriff's office raided the Spahn Ranch and arrested Manson and 25 others (laughs) as suspects in the major auto theft ring that had been stealing Volkswagen Beetles and converting them into dune buggies. Weapons were seized, but because the warrant had been misdated, the group were released a few days later. In a report at the end of August, the LaBianca detectives noted a possible connection between the bloody writings at the LaBianca house and the singing group, The Beatles' most recent album. Still working separately from the Tate team, the LaBianca team checked the sheriff's office in mid-October about possible similar crimes. They learned of the Hinman case. They also learned that the Hinman detective has, had spoken to Bo Saleil's girlfriend, Kitty Luttersinger. She had been arrested a few days earlier with members of the Manson family. The arrest for car thefts had taken place at the desert ranches to which the family had moved and where, unknown to the authorities, its members had been searching Death Valley for a hole in the ground to access the bottomless pit. A joint force of National Park Service rangers and officers from the California Highway Patrol in Inyo County Sheriff's Office, federal, state and county personnel, had raided both Myers Ranch and Barker Ranch after the following clues unwittingly left um, when family members burned an earth mo yeah and what an earth mover owned by death valley national monument the raiders had found stolen dune buggies and other vehicles and had arrested two dozen people including manson a highway patrol officer found manson hiding in a cabinet beneath barker's bathroom sink the officers had no idea that the people they were arresting were involved in the murders Following up leads a month after they had spoken with Luttersinger, LaBianca detectives contacted members of a motorcycle gang Manson tried to enlist as his bodyguards while the family was at Spawn Ranch. While the gang members were providing information that suggested a link between Manson and the murders, a, a dormitory mate of Susan Atkins informed LAPD of the family's involvement in these crimes Atkins was booked for the Hinman murder after she told sheriff's detectives that she had been involved in it. Um, she was transferred to Sybil Brand Institute, a detention centre in Monterey Park, California. Uh, she had begun taking to bunkmates Ronnie Howard and Virginia Graham, to whom she gave accounts of the events in which she had been involved. On December 1st, 1969, acting on the information from these sources, LEPD announced warrants for the arrests of Watson, Kremwinkel and Kasabian in the Tate case. The suspects' involvement in the LeBianca murders was noted. Manson and Atkins, already in custody, were not mentioned. The connection between the LeBianca case and Van Houten, who was also among those arrested near Death Valley, had not yet been recognised. Watson and Kremwinkle were already under arrest, with authorities in McKinney, Texas and Mobile, Alabama having picked them up on notice from LAPD. Informed that a warrant was out for her arrest, Kasabian voluntarily surrendered to authorities in Concord, New Hampshire on December 2nd. Before long, physical evidence such as Kremwinkle's and Watson's fingerprints, which had been 
collected by LEPD at Cecilio Drive and photographs between 340 to 41 um, was aug augmented by evidence recovered by the public. On September 1st, 1969, the distinctive 22 caliber high standard Buntline special revolver Watson used on parent Sebring and Fry Kowski had been found and given to the police by Stephen Weiss, a 10-year-old who lived near the Tate residence. In mid-December, when the Los Angeles Times published a crime account based on the information Susan Atkins had given her attorney, Weiss's father made several phone calls which finally prompted LAPD to locate the gun in its evidence file and connect it with the murders via ballistics tests. Acting on the same newspaper account, a local ABC television crew quickly located and recorded the bloody clothing discarded by the tape killers. The knives discarded en route from the tape residence were never recovered, despite a search by some of the same crewmen and months later by LAPD. A knife found behind the cushion of a chair in the Tate living room was apparently that of Susan Atkins, who lost her knife in the course of the attack. Now, I'm going to get on to some more of the crimes they committed as well. Yeah. Um, one of them was the crow shooting. So, Tex Watson robbed a drug dealer named Bernard Popper, which was his middle name weird crow um crow allegedly responded to with a threat to wipe out everyone at Spawn ranch in response charles manson shot crow on july 1st 1969 at manson's hollywood apartment manson's belief that he had killed crow was seemingly confirmed by a news report the discovery of the dump body of a black panther in los angeles although crow was not a member of the black panthers manson concluded he had he had been an expected relation from the Panthers. He turned Spawn Ranch into a defensive camp with night patrols of armed guards. Tex Watson would later write like he was trying to get at the Chosen Ones. Right, so now I'm going to get on to the Hinman murder. So, Gary Allen Hinman was a music teacher and PhD student at UCLA. At some point in the late 1960s, he befriended members of the Manson family, allowing some to occasionally stay at his home. According to some people, including Susan Atkins, Manson believed Hinman was healthy and sent family members Bobby Busseleil and Mary Brunner and Atkins to Hinman's home on July 25th, 1969 to convince him to join the family and turn over the assets Manson thought Hinman had in inherited. The three individuals held the uncooperative Hinman hostage for two days, during which time Manson arrived with a sword and slashed his ear. After that, oh god, that did not come out right. That was weird. Um, after that, Busaleil stabbed him, stabbed Hinman to death, alleging allegedly on Manson's instruction. Before leaving the Topanga Canyon residence, Busaleil or one of the women used Hinman's blood to write political piggy on the wall and to draw a panther paw, a black panther symbol. In magazine interviews in 1981 and 1998-1999, to 1999, Busaleil said he um, went to Hinman's to recover money paid to Hinman for drugs that had supposedly been bad. He added that Brunner and Atkins, um, unaware of his intent, went along merrily to visit Hinman. 
Atkins in her 1977 autobiography wrote that Manson's di Manson directly told Busileil, Brunner and her to go to Hinman's and get the supposed inheritance of $21,000. She said that two days earlier, Manson had told her privately that if she wanted to do something important, she could kill Hinman and get his money. Busileil was arrested on August 6, 1969 after he was caught driving Hinman's car. Police found the murder weapon in the tire well. Now, why would you take his car after murdering him? I have him? no idea. Like, I... Did... I mean, back then it kind of would make sense because they didn't really have, like, the knowledge that they do now with AMPR cameras and what have you. Yeah, but if you're going to steal a car anyway, why don't you just steal someone else's? Oh, no. It's just weird. Oh, I don't even know. Um, yeah. But that's how the Hinman really uh, murder related to the Tate murder, um, because and the other murder, sorry, because they wrote Piggy basically. Yeah. So they kind of like left a signature with it, if you get what I mean. Yeah. So yeah. Um. Anyway, some of the possible murder motives I'm going to get into now, and then I'll get into the trial and everything from them. So, one of the possible murder motives was Helter Skelter. As in November 1968, the family established headquarters in Death Valley's uh, Irvines at two ranches, Myers and Barker, which we mentioned earlier. Um, the former was owned by the grandmother of family member Catherine Gillies. According to Charles Watson and Paul Watkins, Manson and Watson visited an acquaintance who played them the Beatles' double album, the Beatles. According to Watkins, Manson became obsessed with the group. Manson had been saying that racial tensions between the black community and white community were about to erupt, predicting that black Americans would rise up in rebellion. According to Watson, Manson explained that the Beatles songs foretold it all in, all in code. Now, I don't think the Beatles would have done that, let's be honest. No, but they weren't wrong. It were about then when it all happened with Martin Luther King and what? Yeah, yeah. Um, so according to Watkins, by February, the family would create an album whose songs would trigger the predicted chaos. Yeah. Ghastly murders of white people by black people would be met with retaliation and a split between racist and non-racist white people would yield white people's self-annihilation. Mike McGann, a police officer... On the Taylor Bianca murders stated everything in Vince Bugliosi's book, Helter Skelter, is wrong. I was the lead investigator on the case. Bugliosi didn't solve it. Nobody trusted him. Another theory was the copycat theory, which stated, according to family members, Susan Atkins, Patricia Cromwinkle, Leslie Van Houten, Bobby Busileil and others, it was actually Busileil's arrest for the torture and murder of Gary Hinman that instigated the family's ensuing murder spree, which was enacted to convince police that the killers of Hinman were still, in fact, at large. This had been sustained by interviews of Busileil by Truman Capo and by Anne-Louise Bodak in 1981. Um, Charlie Gunter, a police detective who investigated the murders, said of Bruce Lille, he claimed the Spahn Ranch after 
he called the spa ranch after he was arrested sorry the sole motive for the murders was to get bobby out of jail Bugliosi's co-prosecutor Aaron Stovitz said that he believed the Taylor Bianca murders motive was a copycat was as copycat murders of him. Another motive was drugs, saying many have brought up Jay Sabrings and Wojtek Frakowski's drug dealing in their connection with Charles Watson and Manson and a Brad drug deal as a motive. Sabrings protege Jim Jim Markham believes the murders were in response to a bad drug deal the day before in which Manson went to Tate's house to sell marijuana and cocaine to Sabring and Frakowski but instead ended with the two beating Manson up. In an interview with police, Frakowski's friend Witold um, Kaksanowski I think I've got that right, said <laughs> Frakowski had been involved with many criminals and the drug trade. In his interview with Truman, um, Bobby said they burn people on dope deals, Sharon Tate and that gang. Ed Sanders and Paul Krasner uncovered information that Joel Rostow, the boyfriend of Sabring's receptionist, had discovered a mescaline and coke had del- oh had not discovered <laughs> delivered mescaline and cocaine to Sabring and Vrakowski as Tate at Tate's house a few hours before the murders. Um, Rostow and other associates of Sabring were murdered during the Manson trial. Now, on December the 1st, 1969, acting on information from these sources, LAPD announced the warrants for the arrest of Watson, Cromwinkle and Kasabian in the Tate case. The, su- the suspect's involvement in the late Labianco murders was noted. Manson and Atkins already in custody were not mentioned, as I've said before. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, God, my computer's frozen. Oh, no. Uh-oh. And, um, and Van Houten, who was amongst those arrested, had not yet been recognised. So, in mid-December, when the Los Angeles Times published a crime account based on the information Susan Atkins had given her attorney, Weiss's father made several phone calls which finally prompted LAPD to locate the gun and its evidence file and connect it with the murders via ballistic tests, as I've stated. Um, Acting on that same newspaper, an ABC television crew quickly located and recovered the bloody clothing discarded by the Tate killers. The knives discarded en route from the Tate residence were never recovered, as I've already said. Mm -hmm. Um... And then, obviously, the knife behind the cushion of the chair in the living room of Susan Atkins. So, in the trial, the state of California tried Manson for the Tate and LaBianca murders with co-defendants Leslie Van Houten, Susan Atkins and Patricia Cromwinkle. Co-defendant Tex Watson was tried at a later date after being extradited from Texas and the trial began on July 15, 1970. Manson appeared wearing fringed buckskins, his typical clothing at Spawn Ranch. The trial began on yeah, July 5th, 1970. The prosecution's main witness was Kasabian, who along with Manson, Atkins and Cromwinkle, had been charged with several counts of murder and one of conspiracy. 
Since Kasabian, by all accounts, had not participated in the killings, she was granted immunity in exchange for testimony that detailed the nights of the crimes. Originally, a deal had been made with Atkins, in which the prosecution agreed not to seek the death penalty against her in exchange for her grand jury testimony, on which the in indictments were secured. Once Atkins um, repudiated that testimony, the deal was withdrawn. Because Van Houten had participated only in the LaBianca killings, she was charged with two counts of murder and one count of conspiracy. Originally, Judge William Keane had reluctantly granted Manson permission to act as his own attorney because of Manson's conduct, including violations of a gag order and submission of outlandish and nonsensical pre-trial motions. The permission was withdrawn before the trial start. Manson filed an uh, aff... Affi... Oh, how do you say it? Affidavit? Affidavit. Affidavit. Wait, is that... Is that that word? Yeah. Oh my god, I'm thinking it's completely like spelled some... I would have never guessed it. <laughs> anyway, the Manson filed that of prejudice against Keane, who was replaced by Judge Charles, Charles Alder. On July 24, 1970, the first day of the testimony, Manson appeared in court with an X carved into his forehead. His followers issued a statement from Manson, saying, I have X'd myself from your world. The following day, Manson's co-defendants Van Houten, Atkins and Kremwinkle also appeared in court with an X carved in their foreheads. Members of Manson, the Manson family camped outside the courthouse and held a vigil on a street corner because they were excluded from the courtroom for being disruptive. Other members of the Manson family also carved crosses into their heads and one day some members of the Manson family wore saffron robes to the trial saying if Manson was convicted they would immolate themselves, a reference to monks and nuns in Vietnam who set fire to themselves to protest the Vietnam War. The prosecution argued the triggering of Helter Skelter was Manson's main motive. The crime scene's bloody white album reference Helter Skelter, written by Susan Atkins and the writing of Pigs, was correlated with testimony about Manson's predictions that the murders black people would commit at the outset of Helter Skelter would involve the writing of pigs on walls in victims' blood. The defendants testified that the writing of blood on the walls was to copy that of him and the him and murder scene, not an apocalyptic race war. According to Bugliosi, Manson directed Kasabian to hide a wallet taken from the scene in the woman's restroom of a service station near a black neighbourhood. However, as co-prosecutor Stephen Kay later pointed out, the wallet was actually left about 20 miles away in a predominantly white neighbourhood, Silomar. The state presented dozens of witnesses during the trial. However, its primary witness was Linda Kasabian, who was present during the Tate murders on August the 8th to 9th, 1969. Kasabian provided graphic testimony of the Tate murders, which she observed from outside the house. She was... Oh, bloody hell, my voice. <laughs> um, she was also in the car with Manson on the following evening when according to her testimony she ordered the Labian he ordered sorry not she he ordered the Labianca killings. Kasabian spent days on the witness stand, stand being cross-examined by the defendant's lawyers. After testifying, Kasabian went into hiding for the next forty years. Which I would as well. Yes, I think because anyone if, would 
if there's any chance of them getting out, which Manson has escaped prison before, as I've said, I'd be fucking shitting myself. Somebody's going to die. Yeah. So during the trial, family members loitered near the entrances and corridors of the courthouse to keep them out of the courtroom. Um, the prosecution subpoenaed them as prospective witnesses um, who would not be able to enter while others were testifying. When the group established, established itself in vigil on the sidewalk, some members wore sheathed hunting knives that, although in plain view, were carried legally. Each of them were also identifiable by the X on his or her forehead. Some family members attempted to... Um, oh my god. Dis dissuade. What? Dissuade. I think that's how you say it. Dissuade? Yeah, that's what I put down. Oh, I might be losing my mind. Um, I think they tried to have no fucking clue. Tried to stop witnesses anyway from testifying. Right. Um, prosecution witnesses Paul Watkins and Juan Flynn were both threatened. Watkins was badly burned in a suspicious fire in his van. Um, former family member Barbara Hoyt, who had overheard Susan Atkins ascribing the Tate members to a to family member Ruth and Morehouse, agreed to accompany the latter to Hawaii. Their Morehouse allegedly gave her a hamburger spiked with several doses of LSD, found sprawled on a Honolulu curb in a drug semi um, stupor. Hoyt was taken to the hospital where she did her best to identify herself as a witness in the Tate LaBianca murder trial. Before the incident, Hoyt had been a reluctant witness. After the attempt to silence her, her resistance disappeared. In August 1970, President Richard Nixon told reporters that he believed the Manson, that Manson was guilty of the murders, either directly or indirectly. Manson obtained a copy of the newspaper and held up the headline to the jury. The defendant's attorneys then called for a mistrial, arguing that their clients had allegedly killed far fewer people than Nixon's, Nixon's war machine in Vietnam. Uh, Judge Charles Holder polled each member of the jury to determine whether each juror saw the headline and whether it affected his or her ability to make an independent decision. All of the jurors said that they could still decide independently, so basically yeah. it didn't change their viewpoint. Um, shortly after, the female defendants at Atkins, Krenwinkle and Van Houten were removed from the room for chanting, Nixon says we are guilty, so why go on? On October the 5th, 1970, Manson attempted to attack Judge Alder while the jury was present in the room. Manson first threatened Alder and then jumped over his lawyer's table with a sharpened pencil in the direction of Alder. Hmm. Manson was restrained before reaching the judge, thank fuck, um, which being led out of the while being led out of the courtroom, sorry, Manson screamed at Alder, in the name of Christian justice, someone should cut your head off. Meanwhile, the female defendants began chanting something in Latin. Judge Alder began wearing a 38 caliber pistol to the trial afterwards. I mean, I fucking would as well. Yeah, I think anyone would. Even though Manson had a sharpened pencil, I feel like yeah. he could do some serious fucking damage with that. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I would have. 
Um, I would have gone into hiding as well after that bloody hell. <laughs> um, on November 16, 1970, the state of California rested its case after presenting 22 weeks' worth of evidence. The defendants then stunned the courtroom by announcing that they had no witnesses to present and rested their case. Now I'm going to get on to Monson's testimony. Mm. So, immediately after defendants' counsel rested their case, the three female defendants shouted that they wanted to testify. Their attorneys advised the court in chambers that they opposed their clients testifying. Apparently, the female defendants wanted to testify that Manson had nothing to do with the murders. The following day, Manson himself announced that he too wanted to testify. The judge allowed Manson to testify outside the presence of the jury. He stated as follows. These children that come at you with knives, they are your children. You taught them. I did not teach them. I just tried to help them stand up. Most of the people at the ranch that you call the family were just people that you didn't want. I know this, that in your heart and in your hearts and your souls, you were as much responsible for the Vietnam War as I am for killing these people. Which is an admittance, just saying. Yeah. Um, I can't judge any of you. I have no malice against you and no ribbons for you. But I think that it is high time that you all start looking at yourselves and judging the lie that you live in. My father is the jailhouse. My father is your system. I am only what you made me. I am only a reflection of you. You want to kill me? Ha, I am already dead. Have been all my life. I've spent 23 years in tombs that you have built. After Manson finished speaking, Judge Alder offered to let him testify before the jury. Manson replied that it was not necessary. Manson then told the female defendants that they no longer needed to testify. On November 30, 1970, Leslie Van Houten's attorney, Ronald Hughes, failed to appear for the closing arguments in the trial. He was later found dead in a California state park. His body was badly decomposed and it was impossible to tell the cause of death. Hughes had disagreed with Manson during the trial, taking the position that his client Van Houten should not testify to claim that Manson had no involvement with the murders. Some have alleged that Hughes may have been murdered by the Manson family. No I doubt. I think so, yeah. No, no doubt there. I think so. On January the 25th, 1971, the jury found Manson, Kremwinkle and Atkins guilty of first-degree murder in all seven of the Tate and LaBianca killings. The jury found Van Houten guilty of murder in the first degree in the LaBianca killings. After the convictions, the court held a separate hearing before the same jury, jury to determine if the defendant should receive the death sentence. Each of the three female defendants, Atkins, Van Houten and Kremwinkle, took the stand. They provided graphic details of the murders and testified that Manson was not involved. According to the female defendants, they had committed the crimes in order to help fellow Manson family member Bobby Busilale to get out of jail, where he was being held for the murder of Gary Hinman. The female defendants testified that the Tate-Labianca murders were intended to be copycat crimes similar to the Hinman killing. Atkins, Kremwinkle and Van Houten claimed that they did this under the direction of the state prime's witness, Linda Kasabian. The defendants did not express remorse for the killings. 
On March 4th, 1971, during the sentence hearings, Manson trimmed his beard to a to a fork and shaved his head, telling the media, I am the devil, and the devil always has a bald head. Hmm. However, the female defendants did not immediately shave their own heads. The state prosecutor, Vincent Bugliosi, later speculated in his book, Hell to Skelter, that they refrained from doing so in order to not appear to be completely controlled by Manson. On March 29, 1971, the jury sentenced all four defendants to death. When the female defendants were led into the courtroom, each of them had shaved their heads as had Manson. After hearing the sentence, Atkins shouted to the jury, better lock your doors and watch your kids. The Manson murder trial was the longest murder trial in American history when it occurred, lasting nine and a half months. The trial was amongst the most publicised American criminal cases of the 20th century and was dubbed the trial of the century. The jury had been sentenced, sequestered, sorry, not sentenced, they definitely weren't sentenced, uh, for 225 days, longer than any jury before it. And the trial transcript alone ran 209 volumes or 31,716 pages. Bloody hell. That poor person that's typed that entire fucking trial out. Mm. Honestly, they, need, they needed about two years' break after that. Bloody they hell. one of my keyboards. Honestly. Imagine doing 31,000 pages halfway through. I'd be like, no thanks, love. Yeah, no. <laughs> like, find someone else. I hope that it was multiple people, though, that were typing it out. Oh, they're not going to let one person do I'm going to say, I, I hope to God. They've been there years. Anyway, so I'm going to get into after the trial. This is more about Manson himself and not necessarily about the Manson family. Um, Just about his remaining years from then on. So Manson was admitted to state prison from Los Angeles County on April 22nd, 1971 for seven counts of first-degree murder and one count of conspiracy to commit the murder for the deaths of Abigail and Folger. Oh, I'm not even going to say these names again because I'm not going to get them right, but I've said them before. As the death penalty was ruled unconstitutional in 1972, Manson was re-sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. His initial death sentence was modified to life on February 2nd, 1977. On December 13th, 1971, Manson was convicted of first-degree murder in Los Angeles County Court for the July 25th, 1969 death of musician Gary Hinman. He was also convicted of first-degree murder um, for the August 1969 death of Donald, Donald Jerome Shorty Shea. Shea? following she honestly i'm like reading it and my brain's just like not reading it outright um following the 1972 decision of california verse anderson california's death sentences were ruled unconstitutional and that any prisoner now under a sentence of death may file a petition for writ of um habeas corpus in the superior court inviting that court to modify its judgment to provide for the appropriate alternative punishment of life imprisonment or life imprisonment without the possibility of parole specified by statute for the crime for which he was sentenced to death. Manson was thus eligible to apply for parole after seven years incarceration. 
His first parole hearing took place on November 16, 1978 at California Medical Facility um, where his petition was rejected, thank God. In the 1980s, Manson gave four interviews to the mainstream media, the first recorded at California Medical Facility and aired on June 13, 1981, was by Tom Schneider from NBC's The Tomorrow Show, the second recorded at San Quentin State Prison and aired on March 7, 1986, and it was by Charlie Rose from CBS's News Nightwatch, and it won the National News Emmy Award for Best Interview in 1987. The third was Geraldo Rivera in 1988 and was part of the journalist primetime special on Satanism. At least as early as a Snyder interview, Manson's forehead bought a swash sticker in the spot where the X carved during his trial had been. Um, Nicholas um, Skarek conducted an interview with Manson for his documentary Charles Manson Stu- Superstar, which came out in 1989. Um, Shrek concluded that Manson was not insane but merely acting that way out of frustration. On September 5th, September 25th, sorry, 1984, Manson was imprisoned in the California Medical Facility um, when inmate Jan Holstrom um, poured paint thinner on him and set him on fire, causing second and third degree burns on over 20% of his body. Holmstrom explained that Manson had objected to his um, hair Krishna chants and verbally threatened him. After 1989, Manson was housed in the Protective Housing Unit at California State Prison in Kings County. The unit housed inmates who, whose safety would be endangered by general population housing. He had also been housed at San Quentin State Prison, California Medical Facility, in Folsom State Prison and Pelican Bay State Prison. In June 1997, a prison disciplinary committee found that Manson had been trafficking drugs. It was then moved from Corican State Prison to Pelican Bay State Prison a month later. I love that he was trafficking drugs while in prison, honestly. Bloody hell. Even while in prison, there were still people worshipping him. Yeah. (laughs) What the hell? Anyway, on September 5th, 2007 msnbc aired the mind of manson a complete version of a 1987 interview at california's san quentin state prison the footage of the unshackled unapologetic and unruly manson had been considered so unbelievable that only seven minutes of it had originally been broadcast on today for which it had been recorded in march 2009 a photograph of manson showing a receding hairline grizzly grey beard and hair and the swastika tattoo still prominent on his forehead was released to the public by california corrections officials and i'm not gonna lie i've seen this photo it look he looks horrific on it oh yeah oh he looks awful um in 2010 the los angeles times reported that manson was caught with a cell phone in 2009 probably for his drug trafficking let's be fucking honest and then contacted people in california new jersey florida and british columbia a spokesperson for california department of corrections stated that it was not known if manson had used the phone for criminal purposes manson also recorded an album of acoustic pop songs with additional production by henry rollins titled completion only five copies were pressed two belonged to rollins while the other three were presumed to have been with manson 
this album remains unreleased. On January 1st, 2017, Manson was being held at Corican Prison. Oh, Corcoran Prison, sorry. In, where he was rushed to Mercy Hospital in downtown Bakersfield because he was suffering from gastrointestinal bleeding. A source told the Los Angeles Times that Manson was very ill and TMZ reported that his doctors considered him too weak for surgery that normally would be performed in cases such as his. He was returned to prison on January the 6th and the nature of his treatment was not disclosed. On November 15th, 2017 an, an unauthorized source said that Manson had returned to hospital in Bakersfield but the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation did not confirm this in conformity with state and federal medical privacy laws. He died from cardiac arrest resulting in from respiratory failure brought on by colon cancer at the hospital on November 19th. Three people stated their intention to claim Manson's estate and body Manson's grandson Jason Freeman stated his intent to take possession of Manson's remains and personal effects. Manson's pen pal Michael Channels claimed that claimed to have a Manson will dated February 14, 2002, which left Manson's entire estate and Manson's body to Channels. Manson's friend Ben Gorecki claimed that to have Manson will dated January 2017, which gives the estate of Manson's body to Matthew Roberts, another alleged son of Manson. So lots of people kind of fighting for his fucking body. Oh yeah, <laughs> which is interesting. Um, in 2012, CNN ran a DNA match to see if Freeman and Roberts were related to each other, they, and they found that they were not. According to CNN, two prior attempts to DNA match Roberts with genetic material from Manson failed, but the results were reportedly contaminated. On March 12, 2018, the Kern County Superior Court in California decided in favour of Freeman in regard to Manson's body. Freeman had Manson cremated on March 20, 2018, and as of February 2020, Channels and Freeman still ha had petitions to California courts attempting to establish the heir of Manson's estate. At that time, Channels was attempting to force Freeman to submit DNA for the court testing. Now, after 31 pages I have done. <laughs> <laughs> so from then on, that's it. Yeah. That is Charles Manson. Obviously... He still has a legacy because yeah. um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has come out since then. There are obviously many videos, movies, TV shows, books, etc. that have come out about his life and just about him in general and what he did and in many different like forms. Um, and he has definitely left a mark on the world, whether it be good or bad. I yeah. think bad, but obviously well, not everyone will think that yeah so yeah um but yeah he was he was an interesting man and he did a lot of bad things and he did yeah but i think next week we're going to go on to mk ultra aren't we so yeah. we'll talk about all the testing behind that which Obviously, last week we did Marilyn Manson, which leads on to Charles Manson, and then on to MK Ultra, and they all kind of technically don't link, but technically do link at the same time. Um, so yeah, that's what we'll be doing next week. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I hope everyone enjoyed all my research. I really don't know how long this episode is going to be because I had so I many know. pages. So, uh, I'd imagine it's about nearly two hours. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I'll edit it together tomorrow. Yeah. And we'll go from there. Um, do you want to say bye to the people? Uh, we can do a mix again if you want. Let's do it. You've got the blurg again. I do. You have been listening to Mysteries, Conspiracies and Random Shit with Maz and Cam. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our podcast is available on... Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and what's the other one? Anchor. Anchor. Oh, you nearly had it. I had high hopes for you to get I them know, all then. I, I was know. about to go, yay! Um, we upload a new podcast every... Wednesday. Yes. So make sure to subscribe for more episodes so you can get notified when we next upload and to never miss an episode, as your support really means a lot to us. If you want to see any of our digital files, where can they check us out? Instagram, Facebook. Yes. Um, at? Mysterious Conspiracies. Yes. Um, all the links will also be down below for that, um, as the links for all of the places you can check our podcast out. Um, we'll be on all our social media channels um we're gonna try and start filming this soon um because i've recently got a computer haven't i so we can start filming everything getting everything ready and uploading it to youtube etc just to make it a bit more accessible um and so you can see our faces as well because i know that i like if i'm at home i like watching it on youtube but if i'm in my car i like listening to it um so yeah, but once again, thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.